Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 22nd chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Luke 22, I'll begin reading in verse 63, and we'll read into chapter 23 up to verse 12. This is the inerrant, powerful, transformative Word of God. Please give it your full attention. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be, shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research do a survey every, every two years. And it's a survey of Americans in general, but then comparing Americans in general to evangelical Christians, Christians who claim to believe in the full authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture. The results from last year's State of Theology survey were discouraging. Speaking of evangelicals, again, those who claim to believe in the full authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, the, the survey says that 43% of evangelicals, people who identify as evangelical, agreed with this statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% of evangelicals agreed with that statement. 50 56% of evangelicals, people who claim to be evangelicals, agreed with this statement. 
God accepts the worship of all religions. In other words, Jesus is not the only way to the Father. The only conclusion you can draw from responses like that is that half of the Americans who call themselves evangelical have no clue what that means. About halfway through Jesus' ministry, he asked his disciples two questions. First of all, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then he asked them a second question, who do you say that I am? From the very beginning, he wanted his disciples to understand that there will always be a significant difference between what the world believes about who he is and what his followers believe about who he is. Throughout history, Christianity has always been in serious trouble when those inside the church increasingly believe the same things about Jesus and his work that those outside the church believe. And we live in a day such as this. As a Christian, you can misinterpret the Bible. There are some things that you can misinterpret. You can believe wrong things about what this book teaches. But there are two things that you must get right if you're going to call yourself a Christian. That's what this book tells you about who Jesus is and what he came to do. This week and next week, we're going to be looking at the trials of Jesus leading up to his crucifixion. He's going to stand trial before the Jewish rulers, the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders and the chief priests who ruled the Jews. And he's also going to stand before Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas, the two rulers over that region for the Roman Empire. The central question that these trials are going to address was who did Jesus claim to be? Who does he say that he is? In a just court, the purpose of those in authority in that court would be to find the truth in the midst of all the lies. But during these trials, there seemed to be almost no interest in finding out the truth about who Jesus was and what his mission was. The Jews, the Jewish leaders, had already long ago decided he was guilty in their eyes. They saw the trial as just a means to an end of executing him. The Roman authorities, Pilate and Herod, didn't care about the truth. They just wanted to rid themselves of a troublesome case. Many years ago, read a book by C.S. Lewis called God in the Dock. The dock that's referred to there is that box that the defended, the defendant in a trial, the accused criminal would stand in the box and that's where he would be questioned or accused. The book is called God in the Dock and the basic point of that book was that today, instead of seeing ourselves as standing before God as our judge, we put God on trial, we put God in the dock, and we act as his judge. And certainly it seems that that has gotten worse and worse in our culture, but what we see in this passage is it's always been that way. 
the world always judges God instead of being judged by God. And so what we have here is the truth on trial. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And he is put on trial before these sinners. What's striking as you read through the account of these trials is how unresponsive Jesus is, how passive he is in light of not just the accusations that were cast at him, but the abuse that he endured. First thing you notice is that Jesus refuses from the beginning to retaliate. He refuses to retaliate, even though he would be just in doing so. In verse 63, it's talking about the time between when he had the pre-trial hearings. Remember that when uh, Peter denied him, Jesus was being meeting with uh, the high priest at the high priest's house. These were pre-trial hearings preparing for the official hearing that would come later. And after the pre-trial hearings, it says that Jesus is being held by those who, you know, those who were held. We don't know if this were the, the police of the temple, the Jewish police, so to speak, or was it these, were these uh, Roman soldiers? We don't know. But whoever it was that were holding him prisoner, they began to play what sounds like a very cruel version of a game that kids play sometimes called blind man's bluff. Put a blindfold on Jesus so that he couldn't see. And then they started taking turns punching him, beating on him, mocking him. He had heard that he claimed to be not just a prophet, but the prophet, the prophet promised by Moses, who would come to bring final revelation from God. They had heard of his reputation of being a prophet. And so they punched him and said, okay, Jesus, who punched you that time? Say the name of the person who just hit you, Jesus. Prophesy for us. And Jesus quietly endured it all. Notice that Luke calls their taunts and their mocking of him, he calls it blasphemy. They were blaspheming him. You can only blaspheme one who is God. Jesus had just told his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane when they pulled out their swords to prevent Jesus from being arrested. Jesus told his disciples to put their swords away. He says, don't you know that I could call down a legion of angels to protect me? I willingly allow myself to be arrested. I willingly allow myself to be tried. I willingly go to the cross. He says, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so if I do not lay down my life? Jesus' mission wasn't to avoid pain and humiliation. His mission was to submit to this pain and humiliation for the sake of our salvation so that our sins might be forgiven. He's laying down his life even as these soldiers beat him. He's laying down his life for us. Well, after that beating, very early the next morning, we're talking about Friday morning of the last week of his life, his earthly life. On that early Friday morning, he's taken before the entire Sanhedrin, the 70 elders and the chief priest, to be formally tried and condemned. And I want you to notice here in this part, this stage of the trial, he refuses to debate the truth. Matthew and Mark tell us that at the beginning of this 
trial before the Sanhedrin, he was accused of many things. They brought in many witnesses. Matter of fact, it says the Sanhedrin sought out witnesses to bring false accusations against him. But these witnesses weren't able to get their story straight. They contradicted each other. So that attempt to condemn him based on false witnesses failed. But also, Matthew and Mark tell us in their Gospels that Jesus stood there silently and did not answer any of these accusations. So finally, in desperation, the members of the Sanhedrin require Jesus to incriminate himself. In our law, we don't allow the accused to give witness against themselves. That actually was true in Jewish law as well. So illegally, they asked Jesus to incriminate himself by making the claim to be a Messiah. Now, of course, they weren't asking in order to be enlightened by him. They wanted something to charge him with. They needed some evidence that, was, that merited the death penalty under Jewish law. And if he claimed to be the Messiah, and he wasn't the Messiah, if he claimed to be the king of the Jews and wasn't the king of the Jews, then they could accuse him of being a false teacher. Well, you know, you might expect Jesus, the Son of God, the one who wrote the Old Testament through the Holy Spirit, you would expect Jesus maybe at that point to give a very eloquent, detailed sermon defending himself as the Messiah, showing how the Old Testament prophecies were all fulfilled in his ministry. You might expect him to do that at this point. Instead, what he says to the Sanhedrin is, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. In essence, in a pure Jack Nicholson-type snarl, he's saying, you can't handle the truth. He saw their hardened hearts. He saw their closed minds. If he confirmed that he was the Messiah then they wouldn't have believed him anyway. And if he tried to question them and reason with them, dialogue with them about who is the Messiah according to the Old Testament anyway, and talk about the scriptures with them, they wouldn't have cooperated. They had their chance earlier. Remember back in chapter 20, they came to him, the leaders, the Jewish leaders came to him and, and demanded that he tell them by what authority they taught, that he taught what he taught and that he did the miracles that he did. By what authority he actually said, okay, well, first let me ask you a question. By what authority did John the Baptist teach? And they refused to answer him. They refused to dialogue with him. They refused to debate the truth with him. And so he says, neither will I answer your question. And from that point on, he's done dialoguing with these Jewish leaders. They, would not, they were not open to the truth. They weren't willing to listen. They weren't teachable. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus said something that is kind of troubling to hear. We wrestle with it. We're not quite sure how to interpret this. We're certainly not sure how to apply it. In the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, Jesus said, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, dogs and pigs... That's what the Jews called enemies of God. Dogs and pigs were unclean animals. And so they called 
enemies of God, dogs and pigs. And so Jesus then takes that metaphor and he says, anyone who's not open to the truth is really in the same place. They're enemies of God. They're enemies of truth. Don't give truth to those who are only going to abuse it, mock it, ridicule it, trample it. Now, that was easy for Jesus to do because he could see the hearts of everyone he dealt with. He knew their minds. He knew their thoughts. He knew who was absolutely closed, who were unteachable, who were untouched by the power of the Holy Spirit to open their minds and their hearts, their eyes, their ears. We don't have that insight. It's hard for us to know how to apply this. How do we know somebody that we're dealing with just isn't open? They're not willing to listen. They're not teachable. How do we know? It's hard for us. But what Jesus is telling us is there are those times where you've tried. You've tried to tell them the truth. But the Holy Spirit has not yet prepared their heart to hear it. They're closed. They're enemies of the truth. He's saying, shake the dust off your feet as he said on another occasion. Don't beat your head against the brick wall. Go to the next village. Go to the next person. Go to the next family. Share the truth of them because maybe the Spirit's working there. Maybe they're ready to hear. But nobody among those who were before him on the Sanhedrin, although there were, sounds like there were a couple we know later, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, Maybe that were, but the, as, as the whole, speaking of the group as a whole, they were closed to the truth. But then it's interesting that what Jesus does then, after basically having shut them down, refused to respond, then he gives them the proverbial noose to hang him with. He says, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now everybody knew who the Son of Man was. Jesus, that was his favorite title to use for himself. If Jesus was trying to avoid being condemned to death, then he said the absolute wrong thing at that moment. He's alluding here to two Old Testament prophecies. First of all, Psalm 110, the psalm that is quoted most often in the New Testament, a messianic psalm. All the Jewish leadership would have known that this is a psalm about the Messiah, and it begins with these words. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Remember how Jesus brought that up back again back in chapter 20 Jesus quoted that messianic prophecy and he asked this question he said how could the messiah be both David's lord and his son the answer is only if the messiah is both God and man could the messiah be, be both the lord of David and the son of David which Jesus was it's also an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, that's where Daniel had the vision of the Ancient of Days, the Father sitting on the throne in heaven. And it says, one like a son of man who came to the Ancient of Days, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. This one like a son of man would ascend to the right hand of the Father and be placed on the throne over all nations as the king of kings. He's alluding to what the Old Testament's clearly taught and this Jewish leaders knew taught about the Messiah. And so, interestingly, how they, they respond. They don't say, and so, are you the son of man? They already knew that he claimed to be the son of man. What they say is, are you the son of God then? 
They got the implication. They got the message. He's claiming to be more than a human Messiah. He's claiming to be a divine Messiah, both God and man. And look at how Jesus answers him, answers them. He says, you say that I am. Now that sounds evasive, doesn't it? Sounds like he's giving them a non-answer. But it's interesting, if you look at verse 71, the Sanhedrin clearly understood it as yes, as an affirmation. They say, we don't need any more evidence, we got him. He just admitted to be this divine human Messiah. And so how do we understand what Jesus meant when he said, you say that I am? Well, I like one commentator gave me a great way to, to, to translate it in ways that I think we can understand. He, he is affirming, he is saying yes, but he's putting a slight qualification to it. And here's what that qualification sounds like. He says, when they say, are you the son of God? Are you the son of man? Are you the Messiah? He says, not in the sense in which you mean it, but yes, I am. Not according to the lies that you've been taught or the lies that you've believed, but according to truth, yes. I'm the son of man. I'm the son of God. I am the Messiah. And that's why they closed the case and declared him guilty. Under Jewish law, they could execute Jesus for this blasphemy, this claim to be this divine human Messiah. But since they were under Roman law, they had to get approval from the Roman authorities. They did not have the final word. And so they take Jesus to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And what I want you to notice about this stage of the trial is that Jesus refuses not just to, not only refuses to debate the truth, he refuses to defend himself. Now, Pilate was no friend of the Jewish leadership. Historical sources indicate that Pilate resented the Jewish people, hated all the uprisings, all the trouble they caused. And so these leaders, these Jewish leaders from the Sanhedrin understood that they would have to present a strong case to Pilate in order to have Jesus condemned to death. Blasphemy would mean nothing to, and he would care nothing for a charge of blasphemy. So, Matthew, again, tells us that Jesus refused to answer all the accusations they brought. But Luke here quotes three accusations, and it's kind of like another game that sometimes we play, two lies and a truth. Or maybe three lies and a truth, but here it's two lies and a truth. First lie was they said they claimed that Jesus was misleading the people of Israel, the people of Judea. From Galilee to Jerusalem, he was misleading them. In verse 5, when Pilate is resistant to the accusations, they insist, they, 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 they drive home their accusation by saying that Jesus stirs up the people. That word in the original language, stirs up, means to incite, to instigate. And then, in other words, to instigate rebellion. They're portraying him as a rabble rouser, a rebel, a freedom fighter against Roman authority. Second lie that they tell is that Jesus was forbidding the Jewish people to pay their taxes to Rome, to render tribute to Caesar. We know that that's a lie because when they tried to trap Jesus into telling people not to pay taxes to Rome, he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. It's an outright lie. 
that he forbid Jewish people from paying their taxes. Then we come to the truth. They say he claimed to be Christ, and just to make sure Pilate got the message, a king. He's proclaiming himself to be a king. How do you feel about that, Pilate? How's Caesar going to feel about having someone in Judea claiming to be a king outside of his authority? And so Pilate turns to Jesus and he says, are you the king of the Jews? And again, in the original language, it's interesting, the first word in the sentence that Pilate says is the word you, which is out of order, out of the normal order. When they do that in the Greek language, it's emphasizing that that. That's the way they underline. We underline or italicize. That's how they, they emphasize a word in a sentence. They put it at the beginning. In other words, what Pilate is saying, you? <laughs> you are a king? Well, Jesus says again, you have said so. What does he mean by that? Not in the sense in which you mean it, but yes, I am a king. That's what he means. John, in his gospel, gives more of the dialogue here. As John relates the account, he says that Jesus said, to, after having said, affirmed this before Pilate, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate says to him, so you are a king? Jesus says, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Clear implication is the Sanhedrin is not of the truth and they do not listen to his voice. Pilate, if you reject what I tell you, you are not of the truth. Then Pilate walks away. Do you remember what Pilate said at that moment? What is truth? He was cynical. We know he was cynical because he walked away and didn't wait for an answer. To Pilate, there is no absolute truth. He rejected Christ. So Jesus doesn't defend himself before Pilate, and he affirms the one truth that Pilate was unwilling to accept, which is he is the king, he is the one in authority, he is the truth. Everybody who listens to him listens to the truth. But what's interesting is that Pilate declares him innocent. And we're going to see, when you look at it next week's passage, he actually declares him innocent three times. But he doesn't release him. Because of his pride, because of his selfishness, because of his own selfish ambition, because he doesn't want to upset the Jewish leaders, doesn't want to cause any uprisings, he keeps Jesus in custody. Instead, what he does is he transfers the case over to Herod Antipas. He hears the Jewish leaders refer to Jesus as being from Galilee. Galilee was where Jesus was from. Nazareth was in Galilee. Capernaum, during his earthly ministry, he was based in Capernaum. That's in Galilee. So Pilate sees a way out of his dilemma. Okay, I can pass the buck. I'm going to hand it over. I'm going to refer this case to Herod. And when we look at this stage, the next stage of Jesus' trial, we're going to see that not only did Jesus not retaliate when he was abused, not only did he not debate when the truth was refuted, not only did he not defend himself, he actually, before Herod, he actually refused to perform for Herod. 
This wasn't the Herod who killed all the children under the age of two when Jesus was born. That was this Herod's father, Herod the Great. This is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the one that Jesus called that fox. Fox, pigs, dogs, <laughs> you get the idea. This Herod was intrigued, you remember, by John the Baptist, but then arrested him and eventually was persuaded by his wife to have him executed. He was so overcome by guilt about the execution of John the Baptist that when he heard about Jesus and his ministry, he thought that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. So this Herod, he was an Edomite, so he had some distant connection to the Jewish people. He understood the Jewish people better. I think that's probably why Pilate sent him there, one of the reasons. But here's Herod, he's intrigued by Jesus. He's excited, says he, he was happy to have Jesus be sent to him for two reasons. One is it was an honor. I mean, this is a high-profile case. If you're a government official, if you're a judge, and somebody gives you a high-profile case, then you get more esteem, more your reputation gets a boost. And so Pilate honored him by sending this high-profile case to Herod to be adjudicated, but also because he wanted, it says here, he wanted to see Jesus do miracles. He'd heard all these fantastic stories about Jesus and his ministry. He wanted to see miracles. He wanted Jesus to perform. He wanted Jesus to entertain him, to impress him. But the account tells us that Jesus refused completely. Stood there silently, refused to do anything that was requested of him. Reminds you back in, in Matthew 16, back earlier in Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees and the Sadducees one day came to him and demanded that Jesus do a miracle so that they could believe that he really was the Messiah. And you remember how Jesus responded to that request by those who weren't open to the truth. He said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah an allusion to his resurrection from the dead. Jesus performed miracles in order to strengthen faith for people that were seeking him. He never did miracles to prove himself to people who didn't believe in him, who didn't trust him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 22, verse 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's the truth. Notice how Herod's curiosity quickly became contempt. He and his soldiers began mocking Jesus, abusing him. They put a, one of probably Herod's used old uh, robes on him, a, a, a kingly robe to mock the idea that he claimed to be king and he sent him back to Herod it's interesting that it said there's a footnote there in verse 12 that Herod and Pilate they had been enemies up to this point but their common contempt for Jesus caused them to become friends Jesus said he who is not for me is, is against me there's only two sides you're either of the truth or you're not of the truth. You're either for Jesus or you're not for Jesus. And both Pilate and Herod, for different reasons, end up against Jesus. And they find their friendship in that. 
Let me go back to the original question. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Is Jesus your judge or do you sit yourself up on the throne and judge Jesus? You don't get to pick the Jesus that you follow and worship and serve. The Jesus that we worship and serve is revealed to us in his word. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you accept the truth and are therefore for Jesus? Or do you reject the truth? Or you, do you distort the truth or change the truth so that this Jesus meets your expectations and serves you the way you want to be served? And then I want you to consider for a moment, what does Jesus' surprising demeanor as he was being tried, as he was being accused, as he was being humiliated, as he was being mocked, as he was being falsely accused, how, what does the way in which he responded to the attacks of his enemies teach us? What do we learn from it? Two things. First and foremost, Jesus is not an example to us in that. He's our Savior. Jesus is our suffering servant who had to lay down his life and accept the abuse, the torture, the humiliation, the mocking, the ridicule, the crucifixion, the shedding of blood. He, he had to offer that as a sacrifice of atonement, as a propitiation to, to turn away the wrath of God that our sins deserved. What's so fascinating as we read these transcripts of the court case where Jesus is tried before the Sanhedrin and before the Roman courts. What's amazing is that these sinners, they are so blinded, so dead in their hearts, so hard in their hearts that they cannot see that they're actually fulfilling one of the most important Old Testament prophecies about the suffering servant, the Savior, the Messiah that God the Father would send to save his people from their sins. Isaiah 53, they knew this chapter well. But they, in the way they treated Jesus, were actually fulfilling everything that Isaiah 53 talks about. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was oppressed and he was afflicted Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus' humiliation and suffering and death was unique. Because he was the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He had to lay down his life so that you and I could be forgiven and reconciled to our holy God and be adopted into his eternal family. But there is a second sense in which he is an example to us. And scriptures draw this out as well. Because we now take this message, this truth of Jesus to the world. We preach Christ crucified. And as we represent Jesus and as we take his truth to the world, we too are going to get attacked. We too are going to be hated. We too are going to be made fun of, mocked, ridiculed. You know, we've had it pretty easy in this culture up until now. This culture is not the norm. You look at the last 2,000 years of history, 
Our American culture has been unique in terms of giving great freedom to the people of God, to the followers of Christ, to take his message and preach Christ crucified to the world. But we're losing that freedom. And the hostility and hatred towards us is getting stronger, much more intense. And we're starting to find out that this is what has been the norm for God's people, for the followers of Jesus, for a very long time. And so when we are ridiculed, when we are mocked, when we are attacked, when we are beaten, when we are abused because we represent Christ and the gospel of Christ crucified, we are to look to Jesus' example of how he suffered for us. There are going to be times, many times hopefully, where we will defend ourselves when falsely accused. There are going to be many times where we are going to debate with those who are teachable about the truth. And we're going to dialogue, and we're going to ask questions, and we're going to answer questions. We're going to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints, as Paul says. But there are going to be times, and they're going to increase in the future, unless the Lord sends revival and reformation, where we're going to have to stand confidently in the face of enemies of the truth, who are not open, who are the proverbial uh, spiritual brick wall, and they're not, they are going to reject us, and they're going to attack us, and we're going to suffer in a similar way in that regard that Jesus did. And Peter recognizes this, and he tries to prepare us for it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse 20. Listen to what he says. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Because Jesus died for our sins and gave us new birth and reconciled us to God, we only really have one judge to whom we answer, and he is also our advocate. He's also the one who pleads our case, who pleads his own righteousness in the presence of a holy God that we might be forgiven and accepted and seen as righteous in the eyes of this holy God. We entrust ourselves to him who judges justly and who has saved us by giving us his son. That is what we focus on. Christ crucified, raised from the dead, Christ our advocate before the Father, our great high priest who's interceding for us. That's what we focus on when the world attacks us, when the world rejects us, when the world mocks us. We do not live for the world's approval. We live with a mission to preach Christ crucified, knowing that the Holy Spirit is out there calling lost sinners to know him. Preach Christ and trust yourself to him who judges justly. Live for righteousness in the kingdom of God. Our mission is not to avoid humiliation and pain. Our mission is to preach Christ. May God give us the strength to do so faithfully. Let's pray. Father, 
We thank you for what Christ did for us on the cross. We too were close to the truth. We too were pigs and dogs. Lord, but you changed us. You sent your spirit to give us new hearts. You gave us the gift of faith. And Lord, as we have turned to you by your leading, the leading of your spirit, you have not only given us an inheritance in your kingdom, a place in your family, but you've given us the great mission of being representatives of the truth of who Christ is and what he's done for us. Help us to remain faithful to that truth, to never compromise it. Help us to be bold, to take the opportunity to debate, to debate and defend when the opportunity is there, but also give us the courage to stand firmly when we are attacked. And may we not bring shame, but only glory to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.